So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would use what I'm going to say, what thoughts we're going to think in these next few minutes to help us understand how it is that you do make us new people. Lord, we know that you do, and by the power of your word, begin to change us. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, it's great to be back with you. Um, As many of you know, I was in Cambodia on a mission trip uh, with some people from this team for the last two weeks and saw God doing a lot of really cool stuff, which I'll be able to share over the weeks and months, some great stories uh, with you. But it's always good to, uh, to be back here, so good to see you. And I want to welcome those who are watching online, uh, our youth who are watching. Uh, great to have all of you with us. Um, a couple months ago, someone sent me a picture of a road sign that they saw in Arizona that he thought I would be in, about, uh, for a town that, whose name he thought I'd be interested in because of my own last name, Dudleyville. <laughs> Named after me, obviously, because I'm so very famous. Um, So I did a little research and discovered that Dudleyville is, well, let's put it this way, there are more people in this room right now than live in Dudleyville, so very small. But I was able to find a picture that the Chamber of Commerce took, I guess, to lure tourists there. (laughs) Is that the best they could do? Personally, I'm insulted, right? In a way, that is a metaphor for my life, because I spend a lot of my life not all of it, but more than I'd like to spend in this dumpy little town called Dudleyville. Concerned with Dudley issues, Dudley wants, Dudley dreams, all my Dudley do-wrongs and all my Dudley do-rights. It is just Dudley, Dudley, Dudley all day long. And my world sometimes shrinks down to this tiny little sphere of me and mine. A couple of weeks ago, I went to the doctor to get shots for the mission trip I just took to Cambodia, and the nurse asked me why I was going there, and I said, well, we're gonna, I'm going with my church to see if we can help the Cambodians. And she said, oh, man, I need to do something like that. You know, get out of myself. And then she had this great phrase. She said, because, you know, here on the east side, most of what we have are just princess problems. Princess problems. I love that phrase. Right? Sort of like the princess in the pea story where she could feel the pea under 20 mattresses, right? And, I mean, we get concerned. We get all small things start to bother us. Princess problems. Now, to be clear, there are lots of problems that aren't that way. Serious health issues or, or divorce or unemployment or loss of a loved one. Those are not princess problems. But if I am honest, a lot of my problems can go in that category of princess problems. We fret about our careers, our reputations. We fret about how we look. We worry that our kids may not make it into the Ivy League and, and might have to go to some, become a husky or a cougar or some other fate worse than death, right? And, and pretty soon, you know, we get all stressed out because someone else got the promotion that we thought we deserved, or we get stressed out because we think there's too much traffic on our street, or people don't give us the credit that we think we deserve. And the result is a lot of stress, tension with others, as our lives shrink down to this tiny little world of me and mine. What's in it for me? But what about me? What about my needs? Do people like me? I really think my narcissism is one of the most fascinating things about me. (laughs) And when our world gets that small, everything in it seems big and the littlest things bug us. But the good news is Jesus sets us free from all of that stress, all of that fretting, free to be bold, not cautious, not timid, feel the, uh, free to have peace instead of be worried, free to have joy and adventure and meaning. And you see it in the story that Candy just read about the woman at the well, one of my favorite stories. And the text says that the woman comes alone at noon to draw water. And that tells you a lot about this woman. 
Because back then, women usually came at dawn when it was cooler and in groups. The fact that she's alone indicates that she's an outcast, considered an immoral woman. And as the story goes on, we find that she really is kind of consumed with just her own little needs. Getting enough water, trying to be comfortable, avoid criticism. Her world really has shrunk down to her and her concerns. But for really good reasons. It's not that she's evil. It's just like a lot of us, she's been hurt. She's had five husbands, and now she's living with some guy. And since women back then couldn't ask for a divorce, we got to assume the husbands left her. She's been wounded, like many of us. And because of that, she, has, you know, she can't trust people, so her world, she just kind of gets protective, and she just kind of retreats into herself, and her world has shrunk down to just her and her concerns because she's been wounded. But in this story, Jesus leads this woman in a four-step process to set her free, and by extension, us too. And these four steps aren't necessarily linear. I think we, in a way, need to do all four every day. And the first step is this. Jesus, the way he sets us free is he breaks through all of our defenses to show us how much he loves us. As you may know, Jesus should not even be talking to this woman according to the custom of his day. It's bad enough that she's a Samaritan. And Jews considered Samaritans heretics and traitors. Worse still, she's a woman In a culture where men would often pray, thank you God that you did not make me a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. Worse even still, she is this particular woman. She's had five husbands and now she's living with some guy. Jewish law allowed for a maximum of only three husbands. She's two over a limit and fishing without a license. But Jesus reaches beyond all of those barriers of race, religion, gender, even of moral behavior. Jesus breaks down every barrier, violates every social taboo just to get to you, just to get to me, and show us that he loves us. If you are hearing my voice this morning, Jesus is pursuing you. One of the ways he's doing that is through this story. Will you turn and begin to talk to him because he wants a relationship with you? The second way Jesus sets us free is he tells us the truth about ourselves. Jesus says to this woman, if you drink from the well, you'll be thirsty again. But the water I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the Greek word there means water that is continuously exploding upward. It's sort of like a story I heard about a woman who was traveling near Yellowstone. And she stopped for gas and she got out to go get a drink at the drinking fountain. But when she pushed the button, this jet of water just squirted up into her eyes, her hair, her face. It just went everywhere. And then she looked up and she noticed the sign above the drinking fountain said, Old Faceful. (laughs) That's sort of a picture of the Greek verb Jesus uses here. Water that just explodes up, or life, really. Living water, life that is just exploding up with all kinds of energy and joy. That's what Jesus offers. So the woman says, give me some of this water so I don't have to keep coming to this well. And then Jesus says this odd thing in response, go call your husband kind of an awkward transition, don't you think? Give me living water, go call your husband, right? Kind of a non sequitur. I mean, if this were an essay, back when I was teaching English, I might have circled this and said, Jesus, your essay, though spiritually provocative, contains many non sequiturs and awkward transitions. B (laughs) minus. Shows what I know, because there is a powerful truth in this non sequitur. By turning the conversation to the woman's husband's Jesus is focusing on that thing that she is most ashamed of, the thing that she doesn't want anyone really to know or talk about. 
And he's saying to her, in order to have this full life that jets up with all kinds of energy, one of the things you have to do is tell the truth about your life to God so that he can tell the truth about his forgiveness and love to you. The first step in getting free is admitting that we've got a problem. Admitting to ourselves, hey, this addiction to success I have, it is stressing me out. It's wrecking my life. Instead of lying to ourselves and saying, I am not addicted to success. I'm just trying to do my best in whatever I do. Oh, far out, right? If that's what it was, we wouldn't be stressed out. Until we say, wow, I really do get upset about things that ultimately don't matter, instead of just justifying our anger. Or until we you know, say, I really am worried a lot about what other people think of me. Whatever it is, until we unmask the lies that we are telling ourselves, we can't break free. And that's the hardest thing to do. It's very difficult to tell the truth about ourselves, isn't it? I recently read a statistic that said that 94% of college professors think they're in the top 10% of their profession. Must have been English professors because they obviously can't do math, right? Facing the truth about ourselves is hard. That's why in this story, the woman equivocates. After Jesus asks about her husband, she says, I have no husband. Correct, but only on a technicality. And Jesus calls her on it. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. And then she says this great thing. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Good guess, right? And then she changes the subject. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim we must worship in Jerusalem. In other words, <laughs> enough about me, Jesus. Let's talk theology. Right? Because he's getting too close. He's zeroing in. And he keeps pursuing her, even though she deflects him. And he says, okay, you want to talk worship? Let's talk worship. Real worship is when you worship in spirit and truth. And he repeats the word truth over and over again. In other words, worship is when the truth about me, that I am a broken sinner, meets God's truth that says, no, you were a broken sinner, but now you have been redeemed by the price Jesus paid for you on the cross. You are now my son. You are now my daughter. And my spirit lives in you and is changing you. What truth about yourself is God trying to get you to own? Maybe through what some friends are saying or your spouse or your own conscience. Jesus sets us free by breaking through our walls, getting us to admit the truth. Third thing he does is he gives us a real savior in place of our pseudo-saviors. You see, basically what this woman is trying to say to Jesus is, Jesus, mm -mm -mm, you're not getting it. My problem is not spiritual. My problem is I'm thirsty and I have to keep coming to this well over and over again. My problem is material, not spiritual. I need running water, not living water. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your problem really is spiritual and I'll prove it to you. Go call your husband. You see, you don't think that you're spiritually thirsty, but you are deeply thirsty for acceptance and love, and you are drinking at the fountain of male approval, relationships, and sex to get it. We often don't think our problem is spiritual. You know, my problem is really my boss. He's a pain in the neck, and he won't let me advance as I should. Maybe, but if we were really connected to Jesus and, and, and knew that he thinks that we are valuable, we would care a little bit less what the boss thinks. My problem isn't spiritual. My problem is I can't find friends who will really accept me. Well, maybe. But maybe we also have an unquenchable need for acceptance that can only be met by our Creator. My problem's not spiritual. My problem is I'm bored. I just need a new house or a new car or a new kitchen or a new spouse or something like that. Well, how about a call from God to partner with Him in redeeming the world? That is a big enough adventure you'll never be bored in. A lot of our problems really are spiritual, and only Jesus can quench that thirst. A few weeks ago, I was uh, working out in the gym 
Because, you know, a physique like this does not just happen by accident, you know. <laughs> you have to work at it. It takes years of chocolate chip cookies to do this, right? And often during workouts, I find myself singing along to the music the gym is playing, which has got to be kind of a weird-looking thing to see this middle-aged guy singing along to Lady Gaga, right, doing weights, you know, poker face, poker face, right? Men my age probably shouldn't even say Lady Gaga. Well, this, 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 this one time a couple of weeks ago, I just felt Jesus nudge me instead to listen to worship music. So I put in my headphones and listened to worship music and prayed as I worked out. Changed my whole day. I felt closer to God. I felt more peace, less anxious. Connection to Jesus drove out some of my anxieties. What we really need is a spiritual connection to Jesus. That's our deepest issue even though we don't think it is. And that's why I think water is such a great metaphor in this story, because we need water so badly to live, right? And for me personally, I resonate with this because I am always thirsty. I'm constantly thirsty, which is why I carry around this, some of you have noticed, this giant bottle of water. At least you all think it's water anyway. And I've actually had people ask me on Sunday, is that water or something else? I, I have no idea what that says about my preaching. Water is vital, but you got to have the right kind of water. If you drink salt water, you'll just get thirstier. And that's a metaphor too. A lot of the things we turn to in order to, that to, order to satisfy us are just leaving us thirstier. Even if we are successful beyond our wildest dreams, we always want more because we're afraid it's going to go away. Even if everyone thinks we're great and we've pleased everyone in our life, we always want to do a little bit more because we're afraid they're going to find out about our flaws. The pseudo-saviors we turn to just leave us thirstier. We have to turn to the real Savior. You know, a lot of people will sometimes say, I'll hear them say, oh, I wish, wish I had more faith. I wish I could have more faith. Jesus is saying here, you do not need to create faith in yourself. You already have faith. The question is, what is it in? Is your faith that in your job's going to save you, or your money's going to save you, or your reputation's going to save you, or is your faith that Jesus is going to save you? And in order to be free, we have to transfer our faith from those pseudo-saviors to the real Savior, which is Jesus the only one who really loves us. You know, it's interesting to me that this story begins by Jesus asking for a drink because he's thirsty. But this is, the not, this is not the last time that Jesus is going to say, I'm thirsty. There's one more time. Where is it? It's on the cross where he took on all of our pain, all of our sin, paid the price for all of that, and in the process proved that he's the only one who really loves you. Your job is not going to save you because it doesn't love you. Your money is not going to save you because it doesn't love you. Your image is not going to save you because it doesn't love you. Those things make great servants but lousy masters, and they cannot save us. That's why the most important detail in this story comes at the end when it says, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town. Odd detail. She drops the jar. Why is that there? I think it's the most important part of the story. Because you see, this woman has been coming to that well day after day, but she always got thirsty again. Just like she'd been going from husband to husband to husband, but they always let her down. The well, the husband's, same thing. Water that doesn't satisfy. And have kept her trapped in a small little world of her and her own. But when she meets Jesus, she drops the jar. Because her deepest needs have been met, she doesn't need it anymore. It's a symbol that she's transferred her allegiance to the thing that can really satisfy. What are the pseudo-saviors you have faith in? Will you at least name them and acknowledge them and transfer your faith to Jesus? Which leads to the last step Jesus takes to set us free. 
He breaks through our defenses. He tells us the truth. He offers himself as a real savior. And the third thing is he gives us a mission that gets us out of ourselves. This story ends when the woman runs to town and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Why would she do that? Why would she suddenly broadcast the sin she was trying to hide at the beginning of the story? Because she's been transformed. She doesn't care what the townsfolk think anymore. She's been transformed. And one of the steps in that is this step, to do something for someone else. She is, doing, she is part of God's rescue mission at this point by using her life to testify to others about the good news of Jesus at risk to herself. They could have turned on her. But it gets her out of herself. You know, when you do something to help someone else, it gets your mind off your own problems. We all know this, right? It gets our mind off our own problems, and it just makes our world bigger. Whether that's tutoring an at-risk kid, teaching Sunday school, helping the poor, whatever it is. When we serve, our world gets bigger, which makes our problems seem smaller. A writer named Marianne Bird talks about the pain she felt growing up because she had a cleft palate. And she writes, I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. When I started school, my classmates would always mock me. Little girl, misshapen lip, lopsided teeth. When schoolmates would ask what happened to your lip, I'd tell them that I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced nobody outside my family would ever love me. Then there was this teacher named Mrs. Leonard. And every year we'd have a hearing test where we'd stand against the door and cover one ear and the teacher would whisper from her desk and we'd have to repeat it back. Something like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? But when it came my turn, God must have put in Mrs. Leonard's mouth those seven words that changed my life. She said to me in a whisper, I wish you were my little girl. And she goes on to write how that was a major turning point in her life and began a process that took years, but it started a process where she began to realize that her classmates' words about her were not God's words about her. And she began to feel more loved, and that gave her more confidence. Eventually, she became a follower of Jesus. Later, she became a teacher who has won all kinds of national and state awards because she's known for her compassion and her care of children. And she's helped hundreds of kids change their lives. Mrs. Leonard's words broke through all the barriers that kept Marianne trapped in a world of hurt and pain. It told her the truth. You are valuable to God, and it canceled the lies her peers were telling her. It helped her transfer faith from her pseudo-saviors of lying about her condition and trying to go unnoticed to the real Savior, Jesus. And her final step was getting out of her own world, her own hurt, to reach out to children in need. So her world got bigger. So where is your world small right now? Where are you trapped in a small world of me and mine? And what are your pseudo-saviors that you're turning to? To be free, will you pay attention to the ways Jesus is pursuing you and respond? Connect to him in prayer, in worship, maybe talking to a Christian friend. Or maybe there's some place that Jesus is asking you to confront a truth about your life and transfer your allegiance from the pseudo-saviors to him. Or maybe it's to reach beyond yourself and serve someone else so that your world isn't just population you, but it can at least double to population two. And the bigger your world gets, the smaller your problems will seem. 
Whatever it is, Jesus wants to set all of us free. And he is waiting for us at our well. Whatever that is for us. Whatever that thing is that we go to over and over again, thinking it will satisfy, but it really doesn't. Jesus is waiting for us there. Not just here in church when we're gussied up and looking all holy, but at that stupid well, that stupid useless well we return to over and over and over again. He meets us there and he offers us an exchange. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, he gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Living water, the kind that bubbles up and keeps bubbling up, a life of freedom and peace and meaning and joy and adventure in a world that isn't just population me, but is as big as the heart of God himself. That's what Jesus offers us. So Jesus, help us to follow you in that. We confess that we are not able to do that on our own. So Lord Jesus, Keep pursuing us. Help us to respond to you. Show us the places that we need to be told the truth and help us to cling to you and only you, serving you in your world. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.